Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. I am Dr. J. This is a podcast about language, culture, and identity, and how these affect all areas of work and life. My guests range from politicians to artists, scientists, educators, students. I conduct interviews in English, French, German, Hungarian, and Spanish. You are now listening to an episode in English. The podcast also includes two new segments. On the one hand, Dr. J's Soapbox, in which I briefly share with you thoughts that are just itching to be out there. And on the other hand, a segment called Kids Ask, in which children from around the world have the chance to ask my guests a question. The podcast is brought to you by Kulturium.com in affiliation with Quadil Books and Events. For more information about the podcast and about us, as well as for teaching resources and study guides to the episodes, please visit our website, www.culturium.com. That's www.culturium.com. You can also find me on our social media channels with the handle or hashtag DRJPodcast. So don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and updates. This episode is entitled Third Culture Kids, and my guest today is Megan Norton. Megan has lived in 10 different countries from South Korea and Japan to Israel, South Africa, and within Europe, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Poland, and Greece. In the United States, she has lived in five different states. She's the daughter of a former U.S. diplomat and identifies as a global nomad. Her studies and her research have focused on third culture kids, intercultural communication, and transnational education. Welcome, Megan, to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. J. It's such a pleasure to be with you. I have so many questions to ask you. I don't know where to begin. Well, likewise. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought we would, we would do it in reverse chronological order. Um, what are you doing right now? Where are you based? And then we'll delve into all of your cultural experiences around the world. What do you think? Oh, that's fine. Yes. <laughs> It's uh, similar to the facilitation method. What is your desired outcome? So first of all, let's start at the end. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I am currently in Michigan in the U.S. And I am an independent consultant for organizations and for schools about all things cultural. So that really ranges from intercultural communication theory to third culture kid reentry or pre-departure training to um, looking at how to help international students adapt better to US culture. So it's really the foundation of my personal experience and education have shaped what I do right now. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more what, what this work entails. I mean, how, how for our listeners who might not be from, from, might not be working in this area, what do you do on a daily basis? So how do you help your students? How do you acquire clients? How do you, what, what do you actually do? What is the actual hands-on work? Yes, that's a great question. And that is definitely pivoted because of the COVID times. 
I have found that everything now virtual has meant pivoting programming and workshops into the virtual space. And that has been a lot of strategy because if I'm working with younger children, you run into safe space. What is child protective measures online? Um, how many facilitators need to be in the room? So really looking at that. And then also with international students, what are the time zones they're in? Because a lot of the international students I was working with at Grand Valley State University then went back to their home country. And in order to do some training or some mentoring, it meant then looking at when we could connect on time zones. But on a daily basis, it's really project-based. So depending on which organization I'm contracting with, I will uh, definitely work with the person who is the project lead and decide when will a workshop be held, what is the follow-up information that needs to be done. So definitely um, takes a lot of <laughs> multitasking and multi-managing, looking at a calendar and seeing what my availability is. But again, it's uh, as a third culture kid, so someone who has traveled a lot, moved a lot, been in a lot of different cultures, this is a lifestyle I thrive on because I am so used to change and loving to interact with different cultures. This is the ideal, ideal career path for me. I can imagine. I, I mean, I've looked at your uh, LinkedIn profile as well, and it, you are perfectly suited for this line of work, aren't you? <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes. <laughs> and uh, again, it does take a lot of creativity in the COVID time about how to make it sustainable. I can imagine. Um, let's let's go into the third culture, kids, in, in a second. Let me let me kind of stay with this one point in your work, your daily work, for one second. You work with kids, and you mentioned also international students. So how how do you help kids? Can you give us an example of? what particular points you'd be training with them, how you would be mentoring them, what questions they might have? Yes, I started with third culture kids, meaning more of the younger uh, preteen age about last year uh, or two years ago, and specifically looking at two demographics of third culture kids, missionary kids, U.S. missionary kids, and also U.S. diplomatic kids. And it's more of a mentoring or one-on-one, um, -on -one, or it's also in a group setting where we did a lot last year on talking about the transition from, from in-person schooling to online schooling, or a lot of them returned to the U.S. and talking about that transition back to the U.S. A lot of them, it was abrupt. It was um, very unexpected. And so working through what does it mean for my identity? What does that mean for belonging? What does that mean for grief? Those are some of the big factors for uh, very much globally mobile families. Now with international students, I've taken my English teaching uh, experience and also my intercultural experience to do some mentoring, um, both in language instruction, 
but also intercultural adaption. So what does that mean when you come to the US? Uh, what to look out for? What do certain expressions mean? What are the verbal and nonverbal cues? And so broadly speaking, these are two demographics I work with. Mm -hmm. So you don't work with, uh, let's say with adult expats or adults who, who are also, who might be ad adjusting well, sometimes, yes. So sometimes it is international students who are coming to the US for PhD studies and they bring their families, they bring their partners. So it is expat in that capacity, that mm -hmm. kind of training. I also work with parents of third culture kids mm -hmm. doing some training, some education awareness about what are some resources, uh, what developmentally should they be providing for their for their children. And so it is a spectrum. And again, it, it invigorates me because I do love to work with different populations. Mm, absolutely. And do you do mainly for, for example, do you deal mainly with third cultural kids who are relocating to the US or do you do it the other way around as well? Let's say Americans moving to other countries. Both ways, yep, pre-departure and, and re-entry. But for the re-entry, I, I feel more comfortable and confident with working with the third culture kid teens who are coming back to the US for university. And so spending time talking about what are the challenges and opportunities in that transition with TCKs. Mm -hmm. But you say pre-departure and re-entry, so you mean we're talking about Americans still? Yes, yes, exactly. That's, mm -hmm. that's the population I've worked with. Mm -hmm. So you're always working with Americans who are either going abroad or coming back. Yes, primarily. But you know, I was actually teaching English in Europe. And that's before I did my graduate studies in intercultural studies. And so from there, I was working with a variety of nationalities and also some refugees. And so it was interesting to see that language that I was developing there talking about cross-cultural transition. And that's what really led me into intercultural communication um, graduate work. So <laughs> I'm gonna insist a little bit. You don't have to answer if you don't want to, um, but could you give us an example of what type of issue or question might arise especially from, from the kids, you know, sort of whether it's a pre-departure or re-entry, whether it's the missionary kids or the diplomatic kids. Give me an example of one particular specific thing you might be dealing with. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There, there are a lot of complex things to consider, but one is relations, uh, relationships. There's a lot of relational loss and gains for globally mobile families. So if you think of the third culture kids, they have their nuclear family, but when moving, they're losing their relationships with classmates, with their friends, with their neighbors. And even if they're involved in the community, it could be sports or it could be a place of worship. A lot of questions center around this idea of how do you belong and how do you build community and how do you sustain relationships long distance? What does healthy relationships look like? And, and so that is 
one of the questions that we work on over and over and over again about how do you create those anchors in a child's life so that they know that they're seen, they're loved, they're heard, and somebody is watching their journey. Because sometimes when a TCK goes to a different country, this was in my experience, in my life, social media was not around, right? It was not a thing. And so whereas in this day and age, parents can share photos and videos so seamlessly in seconds to have grandparents, to have extended family observe and witness their, their other families' lives. That is one advantage that I would say that social media has for globally mobile people. But what is the healthy then boundary of connecting with somebody in, in another country, um, whereas connecting locally? Does mm. that answer your question? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's all answering my question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's just one, one aspect. I mean, we could talk about the tradition anchors and we can talk about ritual anchors and place anchors. But um, I think so significantly, again, in COVID times, when we are isolated to a degree and we don't know when travel is, is allowed again, this is putting such strain on relationships. And so really understanding what's the capacity for relationship management. Mm -hmm. So let's stay with that with just a little tiny bit longer. Um, What is most important? How, how, what would you, what is sort of, if you had two messages that you would want to put out there, what is most important in, despite all the moving, despite all the, displacement, all the loss in relationships, culture, tradition, language, etc., continuity. Um, what is the most important, for example, in a child's life? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. And it really has to do with family culture and what the family unit will prioritize. One thing I always Um, advocate for is to understand that a globally mobile um, upbringing or even a, it doesn't even have to be globally mobile, it can be a cross-cultural setting or a multicultural setting. The idea is there's always room for nuance, complexity, and understanding. It's a both and. It's this idea that Um, TCKs need to develop their own identity apart from the the family, essentially. They are their own being and yet need to value where they come from. And those those anchors of home are so important. Those faith practices, those hobbies, those skills, those languages that are part of the family unit. So the one principle, it's always a both and, and it really depends on the family unit to to determine how that is expressed. Mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the things, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll get into sort of your personal story as well, but it, it's always interesting, I think, to talk about what children need. And then there's so many people thinking about multiculturalism. There are also not just the children of diplomats or, or people who are missionaries or working in, uh, in areas such as this, but also just private individuals uh, with Wanderlust, with uh, a desire to teach their children several different cultures and several different languages. 
people who themselves decide to uh, explore different countries. And one of the things that keeps coming up as a question is, is this positive for the kids? Or rather, in what ways is this positive for the kids? In what ways is this difficult? And I think that's one of the things that you're facing as a question as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's definitely the both and. It is challenging, but there are so many skill sets that that are developed in this kind of lifestyle. And again, I the domestic piece that you're talking about too, there's so many opportunities for cross-cultural interaction in a local setting, um, whether that's with different school systems that a child is navigating or even in the home, different languages, different nationalities that they come in contact with. So I think that exposure is not only limited to third culture kids and expanding that definition is so critical as we continue to globalize as a world and do see more cultural access in a local way. I think that's very interesting. I mean, I think one could potentially dream of or at least fathom a a global culture at one point, right? I think, uh, wouldn't that be beautiful if we uh, no longer had race, we had uh, only one human race and one human uh, culture with its nuances and intricacies and details, you know? (laughs) I think there would be perhaps more understanding for (laughs) not not more areas for communication and connection. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding sometimes when we don't know another cultural, you know, ways of being and doing. Right, right. So again, what you're also saying, and what always comes up is that the importance of the home, that ultimately, we go down to this basic nuclear family, and how life is in that family what are the family traditions what is the fa- what is what is spoken what books are read what are the practices etc um, and that is ultimately what gives a child his or her base and his or her foundation foundation can then be transposed here or there or everywhere right mm-hmm. yeah it's definitely um, understanding what the family values are and what are core to a family unit. I know that one one family always says, you know, for example, if their last name was Smith, it would be, you know, you are part of the Smith family. This is what the Smith family does. So um, even articulating that in a very explicit way to children, sometimes that can be an identity anchor of home and what value is really important in the home where it gets really complex is, you know, in, in, in like school when maybe there's a different value and the child has to code switch back and forth They're, you know, one way in the school system. And then at home, they have to code switch to another value system. Um, But even that, that's a huge skill of perspective taking. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a skill. It's something that enriches the child's life. It is an absolute skill for life. Yes, yes. I um, am often asked or sometimes perceived as, wow, that must have been such a, a hard childhood growing up in six countries. We moved every two to three years. And it was the only lifestyle and childhood I knew. So 
I, I knew we would co continue to move every two to three years. And I would not trade that lifestyle for anything. Um, I just very much value what I learned and saw and grew up with in, in my childhood. And so it's almost, you know, an education opportunity to say, no, this is what I learned. These are the skill sets I had um, growing up in this way. So, so let's move on to Megan Norton, the person. I'm so, I'm so curious. Uh, tell us about how you grew up and where you were born and how it all came about. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I have these conversations with third culture kids in other parts of the world. And I often think nowadays, wow, I have such a simple third culture kids story uh, because nowadays we have TCKs who have parents from two different cultures or two different countries. They have multiple passports. They have multiple anchors of home across the globe. They speak multiple languages. They've gone to private schools, public schools. Um, and mine was pretty, my, my upbringing was pretty straightforward. It was very linear in the fact um, that I was born in Virginia. Um, both my parents are US citizens. And yet my mom is a third culture kid. She was a military brat. So she moved around a lot. And then um, we embarked on a series. Well, my parents had embarked already on a series of different country postings, but mine went South Africa, South Korea, Germany, Japan, and uh, Israel. <laughs> I went to private international schools. And so all the language of instruction was in English, although I had to take some electives of the local language. But I'm, I'm hearing so many emerging stories and experiences from third culture kids who had way, I feel like way more complex challenges in learning a new language and um, not having perhaps the support system of a sponsoring agency to help with the transition. Uh, you know, some, some systems require the expats to find their own housing and find their own schools. And so uh, that complexity and those challenges sometimes that are so much greater than, than the story I have. So um, every TCK story is very unique. I'm fascinated by third culture kid stories. Um, the, where I think it is, and I, and I always compare it to my own experiences and my own story and sort of, you know, um, I created this podcast partly because I wanted to explore my, <laughs> my own identity. You know, I wanted to sort of, uh, see uh, what similarities I could find with people around the world uh, in, in their culture and their experience and their line of work, et cetera. And the, the, I think the difference in the experiences that I had or sort of why perhaps it was slightly more, uh, well, I think it's, it's, it's not good to, to try to qualify it uh, or quantify it even, but uh, slightly more difficult possibly. Um, is because you are still American and you have always been American. And a lot of times third culture kids have that national identity that is very strong and defined um, and they can return to it always. 
And for me, the difference has always been, you know, I was born in Romania, but already there, my parents were Hungarian. So there was already an identity crisis there because they were, uh, they, they belonged to a Hungarian minority. So there was always this, this dispute of, you know, were we Hungarian, were we Romanian? Um, and on the one hand, there was the national identity. And on the other hand, there was the the ethnic um, identity. And then I grew up in the States and I felt very much uh, American, but then I had this, uh, all, I, I studied in France. And so, so all these different forces that pulled me here and there, and now having settled in Germany where I actually have half German children, do you know what I mean? There, there is no home. There is nowhere to go back to. There is nowhere to, to re-entry. <laughs> so, Yes. Again, you are speaking into the complexity of, of a story about cross-cultural families and um, the national identity piece. Yeah, that's really, and the ethnic um, identity piece, that's, that's so significant. And again, like my story is, yes, U.S. American and went back to my home, quote unquote, country, because this is my passport country. Um, and yet my heart homes are all the countries I grew up in. Um, it's, it's complex to, to talk about sometimes. That's, that's very interesting. So, so, so you, where is home for you? Do you feel, um, when you said I went back to my home country, um, you weren't completely sure. You, you, <laughs> you hesitated a tiny bit. Is the U.S. your home country, or are you also completely divided? Uh, it's a great question, and I, I feel like I negotiate and renegotiate this all the time because home can be conceptualized in so many ways, right? And uh, I often think of the past places I've lived as my heart homes because maybe what I have in my heart about what that home is, is very much still like um, a child's perception of that home because I was young when I lived there or it's the perception of the people who were there who may not live there anymore. So I'm wondering, even if I go back to one of those countries, um, I've done it a couple of times, but some of the countries, I wonder if it would almost be more painful to see it what it looks like now, because I have such a, a beautiful memory of home there, but home is, you know, people, it's places, it's objects, it's rituals and patterns and routines. It, it's defined in so many different ways. And ultimately, I think I carry all of that with me. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's go by continent. How was South Korea and Japan home? Mm -hmm. I was very different um, ages and developmentally stages in my life. But, you know, a lot of those memories center around the school. And in fact, a lot of the countries, I feel like the schooling was definitely an environment that had a huge impact on my life. And I think this is something I advocate with schools now is don't underestimate the impact and force you have in shaping a child's identity and their perception of the world. Because um, again, you're with your teachers, you're with your classmates in an international school from all over the world. And so that was 
that was my perception of the world. Very um, celebratory of every uh, holiday, um, of different foods, um, very much sharing of, of different cultural values. And so coming to the US for university, it was huge culture shock because I, I didn't choose a university that was completely mm, uh, a lot of diversity, let's say. And so that is something I would probably reconsider if I could go back in time. But in terms of Asia broadly considered, I would say it formed me and impacted the part of my identity that is more collectivistic in nature or group harmony in nature. If we think of the idea of not being proactive in raising your hand or speaking out in class or having an opinion, um, I think that cultural value, or I mean, having an opinion but not being asked for it in the classroom, um, that's what I mean. It's, it, it, I think it stems from that time in my life where that was kind of adopted into some of my classes where it's very lecture-based and rote memorization-based. And so I think that's a part of my identity that comes from that upbringing there. So how much interaction, I mean, in, international schools are kind of an amalgam of, of all these different nationalities um, where everybody's an expat. So no one is uh, the other um, and how much of how much contact did you have, for example, in South Korea and Japan with, quote unquote, the regular population, the 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 actual Koreans and, and Japanese? Yeah, um, I would say quite a bit because uh, one in the school system there there were there were national students there were the a local presence. Also, well, in both of those places, I did live in a U.S. community, I would say, actually. Um, in Korea, I lived on a U.S. Army base. In Japan, we lived in a U.S. diplomatic community in Tokyo. But I also was really involved in the church and the community in that regard. And that was very, um, that was very diverse. And so, and, and it incorporated both, both national languages. And so you pick up, you pick up <laughs> expressions and things like that. Uh, sometimes it was very isolating though at times because I didn't know what was going on. So it was a lesson of, um, <laughs> of inclusion and exclusion. Mm. Was there an emphasis placed on learning uh, Korean and Japanese at all or? In the school, um, I took it as an elective, but it besides that, um, I mean, that helped me in the community, but I didn't really focus on it or continue with those languages. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I feel like that's a huge loss in my life because I studied German and I studied French in school and um, I could just see so much of the value for being multilingual. Mm -hmm. And with staying with Asia for, for a second, what was most fascinating for you? What did you take away from Asia and what was most difficult? Yeah, I'll start first with my experience in South Korea. I was young. I was 
maybe eight years old. And that was my first experience looking different in a culture, in a country, because I had lived in South Africa and I had lived in the U.S. before. And so I was the minority in going to markets. People would want to touch my blonde hair. And I appreciate that my mom advocated, you know, like, please don't do that. Um, You know, that's a personal boundary. And it was interesting how much I was stared at. (laughs) That was what I took away um, as an eight-year-old. I lived there until I was 10. But I, um, again, just such cherished memories of, of the people, of my friends, of the church community, of my school community. I haven't been back to to South Korea. And my cousins teach there now. And they said, tell us before they went there, they said, what should we look out for? What should we eat? And I said, I was 10 years old. <laughs> I think a lot has changed. But um, yeah, just uh, really good memories of celebrating different festivals. I love going to the international food store here to get some of the rice cakes and uh, different seasonings from Korea, because that's still part of my, my palate that I like. My father was the national Olympic weightlifting coach to, uh, in South Korea for, for six months. And he learned how to make kimchi. So that's one of the things that we still, that he brought back and and, and has passed on to us. So I have an appreciation of kimchi. So Yes. So let me tell you, I was um, in Japan. Thank you so much for sharing the story about, um, I I could, I really had, as you were talking about it, I I really had this image of uh, an eight-year-old blonde girl uh, walking through a Korean market and, and having her hair touched. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's, that's what, what is so interesting, what actually sticks with the kids, you know, what images, what, what little feelings um, kids end up remembering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and when I do work with parents of, of TCKs, I do often say, think about what are those personal boundaries? Um, how do you advocate for your children? And um, how, do, how can children advocate for themselves? In, so in Japan, I was um, in my early teens, and that, I think, is one of the most challenging moves <laughs> for a third culture kid to go through. Any kid, you know, there's so many changes yeah. in early teen life. <laughs> so that was an, still a challenging place for me to talk about, only because I was going through all of those emerging adulthood changes and trying to find my place. I had had um, just a brilliant time um, in Germany with the school, with, with everything that was in my community and my world there. Going to Japan, we shifted to having an hour-long bus ride commute to and from the school, and that was hard on me to be able to find a community. Um, I also thought that the academics were more challenging. And so thinking of that as, as my teen world was, was a little bit um, daunting that mm-hmm. I couldn't find my place to belong. Um, 
now, again, I was involved in um, a faith community that was, was brilliant, that we just had the best of time. I made a lot of friends that way and would say that that definitely was shaping in how I understand um, what friendship is. <laughs> also Japanese friends or? Yes. Mm-hmm. Have, do you do you, um, are you still in touch with some of these or do you still yes I I am and and I'm not because again social media wasn't there Facebook was not there email it wasn't popular to email your friends <laughs> so uh, I would certainly love to reconnect with with some of those teen friends um, but the ones that I am still in touch with, I haven't been back to Japan yet to visit. Actually, I was going to go. I had a flight uh, layover um, booked <laughs> for 2020, and then it got canceled, of course. So I, I was actually really looking forward to reconnecting with my, my past self <laughs> as an adult self there. And it's difficult, I imagine, to nurture um, relationships in so many different countries after after a while. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, and and that's definitely something that TCKs definitely need to reckon and negotiate with how they sustain relationships. Because I advocate they need to connect locally um, in order to th- thrive there. But it's also so fun to be able to chat with somebody at any time of the day because one of your friends is always awake. <laughs> so let's move on to Israel. So I, I did my final two years of secondary school, so high school in Tel Aviv. And if you could pick any country that was more in contrast with Japan, <laughs> I would l- love to hear it because it was like night and day, culturally speaking, different. I lived very close to the school for my last two years of high school. And that was incredible because I was involved in so many extra curricular activities and was able to connect with with people in a very easy way, uh, That in that way. Um, I was grateful because for security reasons, we weren't allowed to use public transportation. And so I was very grateful to live close to the school so I could walk there or um, be dropped off or picked up. <laughs> when were you in Israel? Um, early 2000s. Okay. I traveled, I spent the summer traveling through Israel in, oh my goodness, I don't want to tell you wrong. I think it was 96, in the summer of 96. Wow. I found it fascinating. I went, I tried to go everywhere. Um, so, Did you do that solo? I did. I did. <sighs> wow. I knew I had friends from college that I was also staying with. So I wasn't staying in hostels or uh, I wasn't on my own completely, but the traveling I did on my own. So, Okay. Wow. That's brave. It was, it was, it was really, it was really interesting. I, I loved it. I, I, I didn't feel that, un, that adventurous even. I, it was, it was quite smooth the whole trip and it was, people were very helpful and uh, accommodating and, and uh, I really yeah. enjoyed discovering Israel on my own. And uh, I, I was going to go over to Palestine, but 
they closed the border uh, a few days before. <laughs> so I, mm-hmm. I, I'd never, I never made it over to Palestine as well, but. Wow, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what would you, what would you, what did you take away from Israel? What would you say was the, I, I love what you said about Asia and what you said about uh, uh, Korea and Japan and how you learned not to necessarily share your thoughts in class and some of this humility and uh, modesty. What, what do you think, what would you say you, you learned in Israel the most? Um, well, to be funny, <laughs> as a joke, yeah, um, that spandex is the best <laughs> form of clothing. And they had the market on that way before COVID times <laughs> for leggings. Now you have to explain that. I, I mean, what, what do you mean? Oh, it, like stretchy pants and, and legging type materials, you know, just very much not, not jeans or, you know, just very tight clothing, loose or, or loose clothing. Right. Really? <laughs> uh, so, just to be funny. It's <laughs> for, for women or for men or for both? Uh, for, for both. But um, in terms of leggings for women, I feel like... <laughs> That was, that was, you know, popular in Israel way before COVID times when everyone's just wearing stretchy pants at home. <laughs> really? I love that. How funny. Okay. That's funny. I, I, I can't say that I noticed anything like that. <laughs> okay. No, but that's, that's really funny. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess the Israelis are, um, from, from my limited, very limited experience, how long were you in Israel? Uh, two years. Two years, right. I mean, I, I just spent one brief summer there. Um, from my limited experience, I do find that, that sort of, yeah, people were a little bit more casually dressed, I would say. And like also I-, I was in high school. So, I mean, I, yeah, was just dressing however everybody else was dressing. <laughs> and, and, and there was a lot of spandex. Okay, what else? What else would you say you took away from Israel? So, you know, culturally speaking, I, I spoke about the maybe some in the broad general cultural general way um, about the politeness and modesty. Uh, culturally speaking, uh, I'll give you a very concrete example. There, when you go to a restaurant, it's very much family style, and you order, you know, food for the table. And I found that you know, in Mediterranean countries as well, and Greece, for example, and. <laughs> And so I, you have to understand the context that I went from, from Israel to the U.S. for university. And in the dining hall, I would tell my friends, okay, you go into that, that line because it was very much a cafeteria, different lines, had different foods. You go in that one and you get some food. I'll go in this one. You get, I'll get some food. And then we'll take it to the table and we'll share. And that was, I had to educate them about this different way of eating. And I thought, where does this come from? And it definitely came from the family style way of sharing food and <laughs> having, having that in, in Israel. That's great. I love that. Whereas you're looking at sort of strict etiquette rules, not eating off of anybody else's plates or not eating, you know, not sharing the, the meal, it would be quite taboo. Right. And, and even there were times in Japan and in Korea where it was the same. It was the family style. And so even, so my whole childhood, I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> we share food. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I didn't take any food off of anybody else's plate, you know, no, I didn't no, go that no, far, no. but. 
So, so what was most difficult in Israel? Oh, that's, that's a really great question. Again, I think for third culture kids, when you're in a new culture, when you're new in a new country, developing that friend group, that community to understand the social cues, that's all, that's all happening, right? It's very fast. Um, and I would say that there, there's just sometimes miscommunication because you're thinking this is an appropriate way to act and it's not, or this is a social cue that you should have, you should know, and you don't know it. So that was, that was heightened also in high school because you're trying to figure out different populations in the school. But I found in general that that school and that that environment wasn't necessarily as clicky as as in my previous school system. So um, I wouldn't say that was challenging, but but still, you're, you're in in your teen years. You're trying to figure out who you are, um, what you believe, <laughs> and so I remember that those two years were definitely an exploration, and again, trying to figure out who am I vis-a-vis my community, but also uh, my national identity as an American, because for example, another concrete example in Japan, name brands in high school was a huge status symbol. And then when I moved to Israel and that school system, they said, oh, you are so American for wearing that brand. And just that contrast was um, that verbal explicit contrast was like, I'm, what? <laughs> I mean, what in one school system, it was belonging and the other, it's very much almost elite elitism. And I'm like, oh, we kind of ran into a similar experience with, I went to a small Christian school in Texas and really very much wanted my children to go to a Christian school or to a small Christian religious school uh, in, in Germany. And I think there's a bit of a stigma against private schools in Germany it's thought of as very elitist so it's it's, it's similar you know it's uh, for me it wasn't at all something elitist it was more something that had had to do with emphasizing family values and things like that so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh yeah exactly so how how was it how was it for you you mentioned that in uh South Korea and in Japan as well your involvement with the church was also very imp- important how did that develop in in Israel at all or how did you did you at all get to question or or question in a positive way um, your your faith as well Mm, that is a great question Um, and again when I work with different populations now in my work especially with U.S. missions I always say your faith practices, your faith patterns, your rituals are going to need to adapt. And what you find normal here may not be uh, normal or accepted, or it could be completely new in, in different places you go. So I had already experienced that in every place. Um, my parents, uh, this was a priority for our family culture to be involved in, in a faith community. And that looked different in the different countries. And what was prioritized in some churches was not in other churches. 
So I really, um, you know, approached the same way to, to Israel. We found a faith community and it was, it was very different in that we, we had a service on Saturday night, which is the Sabbath in Israel. And so <laughs> um, instead of Sunday, and so that was a different shift in how we, we practiced our faith, but all in all, I, I so value being able to see where um, some stories from the Bible, where they took place, and being able to see that cultural context more concretely. Um, sometimes I think we overlay our own lens and cultural perceptions when we read historical texts and, and even the Bible, and being able to see and learn about the cultural context of where these stories were written and took place, um, I think really made my faith more concrete and, and real for me. That's really interesting. I, I had an interview recently with a director of a museum. And one of the things he said was, you know, when we're looking at classical uh, paintings is that people knew what context these paintings came from you know they had a historical uh, cultural relationship to these stories being depicted and um, what you're saying with your travels in uh, uh, Israel um, it's also very interesting to see where uh, Jesus grew up where Jesus walked you know to actually have Christianity right at your feet um, but also uh, um, Judaism and Islam, um, very, very, uh, very present. But did you think about Judaism, for example, um, in comparison to Christianity and why you are Christian? Yes, uh, that is, again, uh, such a wonderful question. I kind of wonder, sort of, you know, as a yeah. child traveling into these different countries, and now you are in Israel. Um, does that play a role at all? Do you at all explore then, for example, um, Judaism more intensely, or you know, does it come up the, the questioning of your own faith at all? Yeah, I love this question because yeah, you're speaking into. This, this own exploration I did, um, just how certain faith traditions emerge even from Judaism. And I, I did love investigating that. I would say I never explored it to the depth of wanting to necessarily convert or, right, to, to even there, I mean, there are other faith presence, presence there with um, Baha'i, and you mentioned Islam. And so I feel like it's a very, it's almost a very spiritual place because there's so much quote unquote religion and how it's expressed. Well, what I remember and what I'll bring up here as an example is when you go to Jerusalem, if you think about the places that have different churches, there's the Roman Catholic, there's the Greek Orthodox, there's the Evangelical, they all have different expressions um, and monuments of showing where perhaps the crucifixion was, or they claim this is part of the cross in this box. 
And it's interesting to see the rituals um, and the respect and even the art that is showcased to, to remember this, this core of Christianity. This, this is the reason why Christianity exists. And just wondering who's right or what's the right way or is there a right way or is there a wrong way or um, and even negotiating that as an adult, like I think your faith journey and your expression is so personal to you. And if that that one way works for you and expressing your faith and feeling connected to your faith journey, then go for it. Um, I know that I, I actually started wearing a, a Star of David because I was so, I mean, that was just a cultural expression for me to feel connected to that country. And I would wear it in the US. And now, I mean, there's just so many, um, I think, perspectives on, on, on what people think when you wear a, a Star of David. And I still have those jewelry pieces, but I don't wear them as much. But it wasn't a signal of I'm, I'm Jewish, but more of I, this is my heart home. This is one of the places I consider my home. Beautifully said. Thank you so much. That's, uh, I absolutely agree with you. I think it's, uh, you said it perfectly. You said it beautifully. And if I, if I took something away from my, my travels in Israel, I would definitely focus also on, on, on the, on my stay in, in Jerusalem exactly what you were saying, the presence of so many different religions and this, this place being so important for so many different religions, um, architecturally, spiritually, um, et cetera. And I would love to share with you just, just very briefly a story. One of the things that I, that I thought was, was that will stay with me, this, this image, this, this one experience. I, in, at KU, I went to, uh, in college, I went to school with um, an Israeli man and a Palestinian man and I did meet both of them in Jerusalem and we had a beer <laughs> and so we were this experience of a Christian and uh, someone from the uh, a Muslim and someone from the Judaic faith uh, sitting in Jerusalem having a beer um, will stick with me for the rest of my life I, I, I see it now and I um, it always gives me hope for uh for everything so oh that's beautiful i love that story thank you for sharing that and <laughs> and and even um that reminds me also going to the western wall and feeling invited to be able to pray there and leaving a, a, a prayer request in the wall and having those doves i mean that's just such a i felt so connected to my spiritual journey in that moment and i'm a christian and yet that is part of the heritage of the christian um, faith absolutely thank you let wonderful wonderful thank you very much um, let's move on. Let's move on to South Africa. I just, I kind of took notes here and, and, and wanted to go in this order. I don't know if it's uh, emotionally uh, <laughs> the, right, the right order of the, of the countries that, that we're going through, but let's move on to South Africa. Well, yes and no, because I, I was there when I was really young. So that was the first country we moved to. I was there from like two years old to five years old. I did preschool there. <laughs> so that's the, that's the order, you know, it was before Asia, it was before Europe. 
actually South Africa was the last overseas posting my parents had in the diplomat corps. And I was able to visit them when I was 25. Um, so it was 20 years later, I had never been back. And it's so interesting about the sights and the smells and the taste that just <laughs> like popped out of nowhere in my mind. I thought, wow, that's, that's in my being, that's in my brain, but have been buried mm -hmm. under all these other experiences and tastes and smells and experiences. But a Proustian moment, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you say these tastes and smells and sounds, what, what, what were some of them? What, what do you know any, do you remember anything specifically? Mm, yes, yes, absolutely. I remember these, these crackers. Um, well, actually, they're actually cookies, like biscuits that you could only get there. Uh, and, and I had them again. And I was like, this is my childhood. <laughs> this is, this is it. And, um, but also different sites, we went, we lived in Pretoria, and we would do traveling um, around South Africa. And I remember going to Cape Town. Um, well, I didn't remember that scene until I went back to Cape Town. And I thought, this is a memory I remember. I, it, it was almost my first, I think it was my first ocean experience. Mm. So um, before then, yeah, I mean, I don't think I had been to an ocean. So uh, definitely something so striking about the the waves and the, the just the image of of the beach I was like I've been here before I was just wild wild to think about I could have been four years old when I was there the last time <laughs> when you were talking about the taste of these crackers I I, I had to think of um in Romania, there was only well at least as far as I remember there was only this one type of chocolate available or, or chocolate bar available and it was called baton and it was this kind of it was a bit like malted um milk balls but but in a chocolate bar form and i loved these and i remember going back to romania in 1990 and um everybody was eating mars bars and snickers and milky ways and you know sort of all the american uh chocolates, chocolate bars, and I couldn't find baton anywhere. <laughs> and uh, I had to kind of go through the city and, and, and ask several times where, where I could find baton, but I did find some. And all my friends from uh, Hungary and Romania still know that that's one of the things they always have to bring me <laughs> when they come visit is baton. So it's, it's just this association, this strong association with, uh, with your childhood memories. It's, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And uh, it's interesting. My, my parents um, had lived in Zimbabwe before I was born. And they had picked up um, from there, actually, the, the ritual or the tr tradition of afternoon tea. And that's something that was in South Africa as well. This, um, I, you know, believe from the British and Dutch influence um, years, years before, but Anyways, that's something that's so, so traditional in my family. We have afternoon tea and mm -hmm. it's usually black tea um, with cream, which is right, the very much a British way. Um, and there's a certain tea called Five Roses from South Africa that 
I've ordered it on Amazon and it just seems stale. So <laughs> if I know somebody who is coming to a conference from South Africa, I always ask, can you bring me a box of fibers as tea? <laughs> That's good. So what was most difficult in South Africa? What, I mean, you were a child. I don't know if you, maybe, maybe nothing as, as a, as a toddler, it might've just been all easy and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you, yeah, this example. We, we did have a housekeeper and she was a live-in housekeeper. And not that this is a challenge or difficult or um, anything negative. It's, it's, it was part of my childhood, right? Elsa is her name. And going to other countries, it wasn't normal or expected or part of the culture to have a live-in housekeeper. And we had a lot of question marks about uh, people asking like, why did you have that? And um, talking about, talking through what does culture look like and what is expected? And so that was always a conversation I remember um, my parents having and even the communities we lived in, what was expected or appropriate in the other countries um, in terms of housekeeping care or you, you know, mean, having somebody come clean. That's um, a memory I have of having Elsa a part of my, my childhood and of my early years. And when I went back to South Africa, I got to see her again. And that was so, so incredible. It's, it, it's one of my best memories actually in life to, to reunite with a caretaker. I think that is such a gift um, for a TCK. So let's, let's go on to Europe then. You, you lived in Germany, Austria, Hungary, Poland, and Greece. What would you say about, about these countries or what would you say about living in Europe? Yes, again, very different reasons why I was living in those countries. So Germany was part of my childhood. I lived one year in Bonn and two years in Frankfurt. And this was between Korea and Japan. So again, there was that huge culture um, shifting in my own little paradigm of, of what it means to make friends and be in community. And being in Bonn only one year, uh, that, was, that was really difficult transitioning to Frankfurt because again, we had such a small community and I lived right next to the school. Uh, the playground was my world. <laughs> so again, that, that whole memory is part of my childhood. In those three years we lived there, we never went back to the States. So uh, what we did during my winter breaks and summer vacations, we would travel all across mainland Europe. And that was so um, impactful for me. And I, I always knew I wanted to come back to Europe. Like it was just, I think the most um, deep connection I had just to people, to, to the sites, to the access you have, the mobility you have to see different ways of being in, in just a short drive to another country, right? So I always knew I had a love for the continent. And so I moved to Greece. 
I did some study abroad there. That's why I was there. And my parents were living in Austria during that time. And so that was just a quick flight. And I would visit my parents during Easter or Christmas. Uh, my mom and some of her friends came to visit me. So it was very much like, oh, this is normal. But my friends from undergrad, they were like, you are living such an exotic life in Europe. And I thought, no, this is the challenge for me was I had never lived in another country alone. I had always moved with the family unit. And so that was a, a huge learning curve of how to adult in another country. And <laughs> mm. Hungary and Poland? Uh, so in Hungary and Poland, I was teaching English and again, very two different stages of my life. Um, in Hungary, I was mid twenties and wanted to, wanted to live in Europe. <laughs> so I was there. I, I can't stress enough how much um, I loved it. And I'm still in touch with my student. I taught high school. And that was an interesting dynamic at first because I was only a handful of years older. Um, so creating community as an expat, single, young woman, like that, that was a journey to connect with other expats or Hungarians my age in that small town. And so that was a, that was a journey, but my colleagues would say, Megan, you have the skills to be able to adapt and to root in and to be part of the community. And so I feel like that was part of my success and feeling I belonged is I just took risks and went to events and really immersed myself. Where in Hungary were you? I was in Kursag on the western border, um, right near Austria. Mm -hmm. you, you said you loved Europe. You yourself moved to Europe as an adult. And yet now you are based in, in the States. So Let's, let's kind of complete the circle. You were born in the U.S. and you ended up now living in the U.S. and building your home in the U.S. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Maybe you could also go into a little bit about your stay in the U.S. You lived in five different states. We have focused on the big cultural differences that you've experienced by living in different countries. But perhaps you could touch upon the different states you've lived in within the United States, um, because I think there are so many regional uh, differences than, that we often ignore, uh, or at least non-Americans uh, tend to ignore and group the United States as one culture. So perhaps you could also touch upon that and some of the regional differences that, that you experience within the U.S. Yes, <laughs> I completely agree about the regional differences. Um, again, in the different places in the states I've lived were different reasons. And I think broadly considered, it's because I didn't have a quote unquote home state uh, here in the U.S. I was born in Virginia, but my dad is originally from Michigan. My mom is originally from Massachusetts, but she moved around her entire life. Um, so all of her siblings are in different parts of the U.S. My, even my dad's siblings are all different states. And so there wasn't really a core place or anchor where I knew I would always end up or be expected to root 
in. Um, it's interesting I say that because now I'm in Michigan <laughs> and this was always like our summer home between our country assignments. We would come here. And so I only knew Michigan in the summertime, <laughs> but the winter here is wild. <laughs> I don't like it. So, but like I went to university and my, my undergrad for my bachelor in Florida, I um, had a brief stay like six months in South Carolina when I lived with my brother before I moved to Hungary and my parents were living in South Africa. So it was just, let's pick a state and figure out what to do next with my life. And that's where I was. I did my master's degree in um, Washington, DC. So I lived in Virginia. I lived in Washington, DC, but um, of all those places, um, I, I never thought of settling there um, for, for different reasons, but I don't even consider myself settled here in Michigan. It's definitely a place I, I feel safe. I, I have comfort. I have belonging. All of those really important aspects of home. Um, and yet I don't feel a sense of belonging um, like I did in other places. Um, and, and again, that could be because of COVID times, but also because the, in, the place in Michigan I live, it's in a community where there are multi-generational families here. And so it's always a question of, or an assumption, I'm one of those families, I've always lived here. Um, and to an extent that's true because my grandparents are from here, but I don't consider myself from here. And, and that's been a hard, hard negotiation to feel like I belong or I want to belong. And so I don't know what's next, but I, I certainly don't see myself long-term in this community. Um, because it's just a place I'm finding it really hard to find local belonging. It's, uh, it's comforting for me to hear you say that, um, even though it shouldn't be. <laughs> it would be nicer, I think, for you to feel at home, possibly. Um, but it is comforting to, to hear that, because that is the big conflict of my life, the, the question of belonging. And I feel very much at home in Kansas, I feel very much at home in Texas, um, very much at home in Paris, uh, Nantes, uh, Avignon, <laughs> and Budapest, Kolozsvár, and then I would say Hamburg. Um, and I should have mentioned Hamburg first because I, this is my home. And yet, no matter where I am, I'm always missing something. I, it, I always still inevitably feel like the other. I inevitably long to have, yeah, deeper roots. Yeah, it's definitely that, that both and, the paradox of, of our life, of being transnational. We, we do have that longing um, for places or people or tastes or smells that are part of our home. So it's definitely, I understand exactly what you're talking about too. <laughs> so let me ask you one, one more question, actually two questions. So 
what did you miss out on by being a TCK? And what did you gain? What is the great greatest gift your childhood gave you? Mm, great questions, Dr. J. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, being a TCK, it, again, it's the both and. Uh, I would say not so much that I felt this was a, a deficit. What I would say is coming back to my passport country, I was very much out of sync with my peers. And that could be contributed to the fact, again, like social media, TikTok wasn't around. So what are the popular songs? What are the, what's the slang? Um, but I did feel that that transition was very bumpy for me because I didn't prepare enough. I didn't have the language to talk about my TCK identity. I didn't have the um, social wisdom of knowing when do I say I lived in all these countries and when do I not? Because sometimes that shut down a conversation before it even started it. What I learned, um, what I know now and why I'm such an advocate for TCK training and for TCKs to own their stories, to know their stories is because we have different ways of building friendship. We have different ways of thinking about perspectives from different cultures. Um, we have different ideas of what's for dinner or maybe what's typical for breakfast. Especially coming back to the US, I felt that so deeply because I realized the way that I was making friends um, in international schools, in, in those local communities in different countries, was I was asking people about their stories and I wanted to hear about their stories. In a US American context, that's not how friendships are built. Friendships are built by hanging out, by getting to know somebody, by doing things, by telling bits of your story. Um, but that was a huge misunderstanding because I thought people didn't want to hear my story and that shut me down. Whereas they were saying, you're going way too deep, too fast. Like, wow, slow your roll. Mm -hmm. Like, so I would say just understanding your story better will help you become a more well-adjusted adult wherever you are. So that would be, right, the, the challenge and yet the opportunity. I would say for the biggest blessing and privilege of, of my upbringing is that into adulthood, I do work with such a vast um, spectrum of people, like international students or U.S. diplomats or military or corporate or nonprofit. And especially when I work with these diverse populations, it's so neat to maybe say a word in a language that's their mother tongue, or maybe it's asking about a certain food that they like to eat, trying to connect um, on something that they have a frame of reference for and to give them that piece that I have that frame of reference to. Because too often, especially in the context of international students, they think uh, coming to this area of Michigan that nobody has left the state, nobody has left the US. And so right away, asking them questions and connecting on a memory I have personally of being in their country or eating um, something from their country, that will put them at ease. And I think 
TCKs are brilliant, brilliant bridge builders and connectors in that way. Megan, thank you so much. Any last words that you'd like to add? Oh, Dr. J, this has been incredible um, to connect with you, to tell a bit about my stories. Thank you for taking that time. Um, I think it's such a, a precious gift to give somebody opportunity to share their story. And I really greatly appreciate your platform. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. Can I add in um, thank you in all the languages that you speak to? Sure, yeah. So, kusanam sepen, merci, dankeschön, thank you. And thank you all for listening. This is Dr. J, signing out. Mm -hmm.